Namaste. So let me start by saying there will be no errors. <laughs> let there be no errors. <laughs> and yes, as you rightly said, errors are steps upon the way. That's how Sri Aurobindo writes in Savitri. So let me start with these lines of Savitri which you just reminded me of. One who has made this world is ever its Lord. Our errors are his steps upon the way. So, basically, there is something very interesting with the advent of man. You know, people often differentiate man from the other species that have gone before him in terms of certain faculties and capacities. But there is something unique that happens with man which needs to be focused and that is in a way the subject of uh, our discussion today. Uh, and it is this that man of all the creatures on planet earth and of all the creatures in all the worlds, which includes the gods, which includes the titans, <laughs> has an insatiable thirst for progress, is characterized by this. There is a very beautiful poem uh, of Sherbindu in which just few lines I will uh, just like to recollect. There is a need within the soul of man these splendors of the surface never sate for life and mind and their glory and debate are a slow prelude to a vaster theme, a preface to the epic supreme. This insatiable thirst for progress is what man is born with and this is one of the greatest treasures that he carries within him. Shabindra says in The Life Divine very beautifully that God's the animal is satisfied with a modicum of necessities and gods are content with their splendor. It is only man who is the most discontented of all. And it is for this reason that he can be seized, this is not exact word but more or less, that he can be seized by a frenzy to seek the illimitable, the vast, the infinite, the eternal. Look at man's story. Because he is ever dissatisfied, which is a gift of grace in him, the thirst for progress is always burning inside man. We can almost say that when a person believes that he has no more progress to make, when he believes he has done all that he had to do, when he feels he has achieved everything that he had to achieve, and he has to only now multiply upon what he has, you know, by achievement I don't mean more and more money, more and more outward things, but he feels that I know now what I had to know, a typical uh, illusion that very often grips professionals like us. That we have a degree and now we know. So the moment man believes this, he begins to decline and he begins to grow old. Whereas when we are full of wonder that there is so much more, so much more to know, to discover, to experience, to grow, then we are like a child who is ever wanting to go forward. In one of our uh, interesting conversations, the mother said, you know, Krishna is the imminent divine in man. He represents the psychic urge, the psychic being. And then she says, and do you know why he is uh, always shown as a child? Bala Krishna, that's the image that most people have. He, she says, because he is always carrying us forward. He is always looking forward. See, this is the beauty and the unfortunate part is that because we are trapped in systems, one of them is degree, the degree 
problem that now I have a degree, now I have to only, uh, you know, talk to people. Now, because of this, we stop progressing because we have this idea that now we know. So, this insatiable thirst for progress, as the mother says, comes because we carry within us, which is a portion of the illimitable. It's a small little baby, but it's a portion of the illimitable. And it's so beautifully conjured in one of the stories in the Puranas, uh, Bhagavad Purana, Vishnu Purana also. It is the story of Vamana Avatar. You see, if you see the transition of avatars, Vamana comes from after the lion man. So half animal, half human, there comes Vamana, he is the dwarf man. And what does this dwarf man want? He wants just a little space to stand. You know, that's what we, we all, there is one way of looking at life that we are standing only on two feet. That much ground is ours. Well, it's figuratively true. But the, it's, it's literally true. But it's not true in the deepest sense. Standing on two feet, man seeks to measure the skies, the earth, the below and everything else. So this is the beauty of man and so Vamana says, I just need three feet to stand upon. And as the story goes that the... Uh, the great king, Bali, he says, all right, please go ahead. And with one he measures the heavens, the second the earth and the third he measures the subconscious. Wherein he says, Bali, that where do I keep my third feet? And Bali says, well, on my head because this is the only thing left. It's a very interesting story of the two stages of human progress. Before I come to the two paths, two stages and two types of progress. Bali is a extremely, you know, he is a great king. He is a very generous king. He is endowed with the capacity, he, is, he is, uh, loves to take care of his subject. That's why, you know, he is prayed and worshipped all over. So, he represents a kind of sattvic impulsion which still acts under egoism, not like Rama. Rama's sattvic impulsion is under an illumined consciousness. Bali's sattvic impulsion to give, etc. is under the egoism. I am the one. So, with that it starts. This can lead man up to a point. But there is a point beyond which it cannot lead us. And that's when Vamana comes in, the dwarf, the psychic being in man, which comes and says, subordinate yourself, now I am going to take over. And when I take over the world's unconquered, that is the true path of conquest for man. Because Bali has conquered the heavens, but he has conquered by force. How does Vamana conquer it? By natural right. That's my space. So he's, you know, one foot. So basically there are two types of progress. One which we make within the little circle of our ego. Fence of our ego. By ego, I mean not something very complicated, you know, lectures on ego, but just our self identification. If I identify myself with the mind, body, and life, I want to make progress within those limits. Meaning, thereby, I want to amass life more objects for enjoyment. A lot of people believe that if they have shifted to a new house, a bigger house, if they have bought a new car, it's a progress. Well, in a sense, but it's progress within the limits of the life. It cannot give us what we are really seeking. It cannot give us that abiding joy which we hope to get through this. But yet, it is one kind of progress. There is a progress even in terms of the body. They are both. Some people, you know, like to uh, keep their bodies fit and help it, you know, um, stay in a good condition, which is okay. This is one kind of progress. And there is a progress within the mind. Within the mind itself, we can see there are two types. One is that, I, you know, there are some people who have a fad about degrees and all these things. So, 
uh, <laughs> you know, when I became a doctor, I, people would ask you, do you want this degree, that degree? And you can fill your bio data with all kinds of degrees. Most of them are all purchased. But people are very happy getting those degrees. They want to fill up their visiting card. Or they want to do one course after another. This is one kind of progress the mind makes along one narrow specialized line. This is another kind of progress the mind can make. And that is towards new ideas, new visions, new possibilities. That is another kind of progress. Subtly it makes the mind vaster. The specialization progress where one just develops along a certain line stops as far as the totality of uh, you know, researches are taking place in that field. And it's not our own progress. It's somebody else's progress which we have translated within ourselves. But the moment mind begins to take leap into new areas, new dimensions, then there is another kind of progress which begins to open. The mind itself is trying to surpass its own limits. It's doing it unwittingly. It doesn't use these words, but it's not satisfied with whatever. Say for instance, in the field of medicine, I can take this example, that there are two kinds of doctors, one who are very satisfied and happy within the framework of thought that is given to them. Virus, virus means this. Vaccine, vaccine means this. This technology means this. Medicines means this. Because they are so trained, but not trained, I can use the word equally, conditioned. See, we, uh, we don't realize that the power of this kind of conditioning can be so strong that you can't, you stop thinking otherwise. Throughout the medical school, for instance, we are trained to believe that man is just a body. So there, there is a tendency to forget that he is not a body. He has a say in his own recovery. <laughs> so <laughs> we discover it through the back door. That he has a say. He is not a dead body. Body like a mechanical body. He is a living body, conscious body. He has a mind which can have a say. So what happens is that within our certain limits we move. And uh, we get to know more and more about it. We read papers, maybe do some researches what is called as so-called original researches, but there is nothing really original about it because you are still moving along a fixed train of thought. This is specialization kind, very, very small progress. Minuscule, over a lifetime one will make just a little and beyond a point it stops because um, the discoveries keep on mounting. Then there is another line where you, wa- you feel this is narrow. You want, you want more, you want to understand truly what really is a virus. Why does it suddenly attack? Is there a permanent cure to it? Are vaccines the only answer, final answer? So you challenge the existing paradigms. And when you challenge the existing paradigms, suddenly a door opens. And we discover new things, new possibilities, new ways of looking at life, new kind of orientation. So this is another kind of progress. All this is taking place within the framework of the ego. It is still the ego. But there is a lot which we can progress. Why I am saying this premature bursting of the shell of the ego when we talk about spiritual progress can sometimes be, uh, you know, it's not yet ripe. So we must make the extent of progress which is possible. New ways of thought, new vistas of knowledge, life. For instance, our heart, you know, responds in certain ways, likes and dislikes. Is it possible... It should be a challenge we should take. I mean, life is wonderful when we take a challenge. For instance, when somebody doesn't like us, we automatically say, oh, he is a bad person. He's not a good person. When somebody flatters us, say, you know, that person, he is so wonderful. It's called as giving the cap. And a lot of topi pena na. Hindi mein jada better word. Topi pena diya. Why? If you want to get your job done... People have mastered the art of self, you know, deceiving others. You enter into a person's house and say, Oh, you are looking so wonderful. After that, you give your papers and see how it gets signed. 
This is called Tupi Pahinara. So this is one kind of response where our life is learnt, cunning. You know, even when you dislike a person, apparently you know the person is not what, you know, conforming to the highest ideals or ideals of humanity and yet you want to be very nice in front of the person and we call it progress, bana ke rakhna, etc., etc. But there is another kind of more authentic progress, the authentic version of this. This is a deception. Authentic version is, well, I know that the person is so and so. The person probably hates me. Can I return love for hate? Now this is a leap and this is still within human limits. We have not yet touched the spiritual essence of things. Within human limits, can we return love for hate? Can we, you know, give love to those who seem to be absolutely indifferent to us? Is it possible to do that? Then there is another kind of impulsion that the life energy, normally life energy is driven by desires and by progress it means whatever I can get amass through the agency of desire. But desires have a limit. And they, you know, they are a fuel which throw up a lot of things otherwise. Now, are there new possibilities within life? Let's say for instance, normally if we want something, we have to go and get it or ask somebody to get it for us. Or order from Amazon, that's ask somebody. <laughs> Amazon has become now the modern center. <laughs> so, oh no, not, you have to pay for it, okay? Uh, there are some free tickets, of course. <laughs> so, that's one kind of ability, possibility. But is it possible that I need something and it comes to me? This well within the limits of life. It doesn't require even a spiritual awareness. It's simply the knowing the law of life that when we conserve an energy, it becomes more and more powerful. So when we don't let our life energy be driven by desire, here, there, everywhere, shopping in hundred places, you just conserve this energy. The beauty is this energy now becomes a power within us and when you need something, it automatically comes. Mother describes this in one of her, uh, you know, conversations. She says this, uh, so many of us I am sure must have experienced, I have experienced it number of times. Just don't be driven by desire, whatever you need will come back and come back, come to you in abundance. So she says when I was a child, she would never ask anything. From anyone. She had made a principle of life. And I think it's the most wonderful principle. Don't ask anything. Nothing. And you see, if you can sincerely do it, not like inside I want it, but you know, outwardly I am not asking. Then she says, I never asked. Once I needed a petticoat. And she just said, oh, I wish I had a petticoat. She says, within few days, five of them came to her. And this is so true. Why? Because it's an energy. We don't understand how life energy operates. Life energy exists. It's independently. It's a tremendous power. And if we really conserve it, it can do wonders. This is still within the range of our human possibilities. Same with the body. The body ordinarily we believe it has to be subject to certain things. It has to fall ill. It has, you know, if it is exposed to a certain let's say atmosphere, the body, you know, has to go through aging, another, it has to die, all these things. Supposing we challenge these beliefs for the body, it must sleep so many hours, it must eat so much. All these rules of the mind which has been discovered for the body. What if body took the challenge otherwise, that I can bear much more than what ordinarily the mind has conditioned me to believe. 
And there Shurabindra has an aphorism where he says the North Indian hurts man. He gets a fever and he knows how to cure himself. Because he takes some herb or takes some water and he is cured. The modern doctor gives medicine. So he says, where is the difference? Mother recounts a very interesting observation she made when she came to India. She said, I was going by a pool and I saw that, you know, there are villages where people are bathing in water. I mean, I have seen it. I am sure many of us may have grown up seeing this. Uh, I have definitely for once seen open well, going into pools, drinking water, which is muddy. Animals are also going there and let me not speak of the unspeakables. And then they drink that water and they remain healthy. Well, I have seen it myself. It happened in many villages. Now, we are not saying that one should go back to that life. And one cannot go back to the life because, you know, time has moved. But the possibility of the body is there. That it could counter things. And why does the body counter things? If you go into its little nitty-gritty, it's very amazing. It's not just about the immune system taking the challenge. That's one normal explanation. Let's say from childhood you grow up with a certain kind of water. Like I was grown up on a ordinary open well water. So what happens? Your body has made friends with the well and all that is inside it. This idea which has come that this is an enemy, that is an enemy. Oh, this is dangerous, this is going to harm me. Whereas when you grow up, all nature is your friend. You walked into forest, there were snakes around and you know you walked around and your body itself develops a lot of instinctive understanding and reactions and responses. You didn't know there are so many illnesses because you had not read medicine. One of the big problems that happened when I joined the medical school, started reading biochemistry and the first only thing, first time you read is about deficiencies of vitamins. And I said, oh my God, I'm having this, I'm having that. All the deficiencies in the world suddenly seem to be, you know, all inside me. Why? Because, uh, you know, as they say, little knowledge is a dangerous thing. I never thought like that before, that there is something called as vitamin deficiency. We all lived, grew up, played for eight hours, nine hours and everything was wonderful. So, there is within the body capacity of endurance which is beyond our, you know, body can go without sleep, hunger, thirst. We can see it in the case of either mad people or determined people in the military. Three, three days they have commando training where you don't sleep. You have hardly anything to eat. And you are constantly walking with 10 kilograms plus weight on your shoulders. You do it. They do it well. So the capacity of the body is enormous. But again, our mind is conditioned. So there is a lot, lot, lot which can be done in terms of just within the limits of this frame. This one type of progress. But this progress is not enough if we do not simultaneously progress within. That's where Shirobindo speaks, says in Life Divine, what we are facing is an evolutionary crisis where this tremendous technological development and there is no commensurate spiritual development. Now why this spiritual development? Now here comes the rub. So all this development which man makes, even his body, it can, un- you know, it can get over hunger and thirst. Sleep, exhaustion. You see, when you read about Ravana's tapasya and Hiranyakashup tapasya, my God, standing on one leg, one foot, putting their hands up. It's amazing. Ravana went on to cut his head and offer. I mean, it's of course crude. This is not something which God likes. But look at the capacity in terms of uh, simply stretching your body to a limit. One can do all that. But at whose mercy is all this development of nature? 
It's at the mercy of the puny ego. This is the danger. That there is the AI and AI is a machine. All machines can be used by forces which are always around. Body is a machine used by certain forces. You know, there are people in whom the soul has left, but the body continues as a machine. There are forces of life which use this machine. I, I mean, you'll see sometimes in completely possessed people, mad. There was a lady here, moving around, completely gone. She would beat and abuse and all this. One could see clearly there is nothing left inside. But so wonderful that these forces were driving her like a machine that um, rain, hail, storm, whatever used to come. She had no place to stay. Hardly any food to eat. But she continued, continued to thrive and grow till one day some people came and took her to some place. But the point that I am trying to say is that there is a possibility of the human body. And yet, if all this possibility of the body, the mind, the intelligence, the heart is at the service of the ego self, then it is very dangerous. Then this very progress becomes counterproductive. This is what happened to Atlantis. This is what happened to Mayan civilization. This is what happened even to Troy, which had developed along wonderful lines. And this is what happened to the Lanka of Ravana. This is what is happening to America, the dream destination. Because when you develop purely technologically, outwardly, and you don't develop in in inwardly, this is what makes an Asuric civilization. So from there comes the two paths of progress. One is you progress outwardly, which is good, nothing wrong with it. But at whose mercy is it? If it is at the mercy of the ego, then we have expanded means to destroy the world to for greed, for glutton and everything. And which is counterproductive. So there must be another kind of progress which is complementary, the second line of progress. So one is an Asuric titanic progress. Why it is Asuric? Not that it is wrong to develop. Of course one should develop these capacities. But it is at the service of the Asurine man. Asura is the crude, unregenerate, vital. You have AI, wonderful. But this AI can become such a dangerous thing. Because you have created a machine and machine can be used by any force. You know, people are already speaking about AI uh, beginning to develop a kind of independent, not independent thought, but things which have not been fed into it, it can develop. It can be used by forces. When computer was made and brought here, uh, first computer, so this 1960s, and the mother was very amused, and the person came, he himself told me about it, that, you know, he brought the computer, set up everything, and he wanted to demonstrate to the mother. So, everybody is excited, and he was very excited. He was telling me I was um, excited, apprehensive, everything. And mother was just sitting and smiling. So he brought the company. He tried everything. It won't work. It just won't start. Something would happen. Something would go wrong. And the mother kept smiling. Then she says, you know what? This is a sensitive machine. It responds to occult vibrations. And then it all started. So many times when we look at mothers dealing with machines... Machines which had broken down and she said there are beings which break down, there are beings which repair. Meaning thereby an entire technological development can be at the mercy of forces. Now how do they work? We don't see them. You have a nuclear pile. You think that a human being is going to press and decide so it's safe. It's not safe. Why? Because now there are forces and entities which want it to be used. So what do they do? They enter the head of the man who is sitting there, who is a normal, ordinary human being. 
and make him feel extremely suspicious, make him feel that he must push the button. You know, 1957, I think, Cuban crisis when uh, it was very, very close. The world was very close to the, uh, you know, nuclear war with Russia and America coming so close. Suez Canal crisis, all these. Because there is a man sitting out there, he is also a machine who is driven by forces. And then there are machines which are coming out of these nuclear piles surrounded by these, you know, armaments that come, 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 you must use me, use me. And then the two come together and there is devastation. So this is the second part that one has to remember that if there is no commensurate spiritual progress, inner progress, so we were at the man-machine, so technological advancement without commensurate spiritual development, you know. Thank you so much. So this is within the limits of the ego. But there is another kind of development which can take place and that is which is important, not only important, which is urgent. It's urgent because if we don't do that now, the ego, the mind's empire has expanded to a point where either it must burst into something new, something higher and greater or else it will be devastating to the whole earth. That's why we see that during the time when, you know, Shubhendra and the mother, last century, they were working so much at ideative level, at the practical level, at the deepest level, highest level, most material details level, so that humanity can go through this crisis. And this crisis, if you really look at it from the beginning of last previous century, or at least the second decade, went on almost till 50s. It's only after 60s that we see some clearing. Now, dangers come, but more or less, you know, Things are still in control. So this second progress, second type of progress and the more important progress, the path to progress which man must take is the inner progress. And this inner progress is where we, uh, we should focus which automatically is happening. A number of human beings feel uh, and that's where it begins that our life within these limits is a stifled life. The sign that we are ready for the inner progress is when despite all the progress and advancement, we believe that there is something which is still missing. We believe that there are limits to which man can go. There is something else and there are a number of people all over the world who are beginning to feel that's where the discontent takes a new form. This one kind of way of arriving at contentment is through desire. I want this, I get it. After some time I want more, I get it. After some time I want more and I get it. This is one kind of progress driven by ambition and desire within the limits of the ego, centered around the mind. I am, you know, there was a doctor friend who once walked into my office and said, you know, I have a problem, I want to discuss with you. I said, yeah, please. He said, you know, when I see a car on the road, I want to take, take over it. So I said, this is okay. I mean, I know you drive fast and you are quite good. So take over it. He said, no, the problem is then I see another car and I want to take over it. <laughs> and this goes on. So there comes a time when we realize this is just extending horizontally. You see, medical field is a classical example. Initially, there was so much of, you know, oh, we can replace limbs, we can do this, we can, you know, donate organs, we can transplant things. We can have newer and newer medicine, gene therapy. It was one kind of progress. But then after a point, one realizes that it hasn't changed anything on the face of the earth. There is something else which is needed. You realize that this is not what is going to change. There is something more. And that's where we see an inner door has been opened for mankind. At least in present times. That while simultaneously we are progressing along lines of AI. 
you also need to develop DI. So, AI is artificial intelligence. DI is divine intelligence. While we are progressing along lines of capacities and perhaps even faculties to an extent, we have to also develop along the lines of who is the user who is using these things. If the user is the ego, there is a problem. But if the user, the true user, has to be the soul. See, this is a very interesting secret. It looks just a little change. But it changes everything. So there is a whole way of looking at spirituality as otherworldly. All this progress has no meaning. This must be discarded. All this is a vanity, illusion, etc. And one has to just pass into the beyond. The road to nirvana. But there is another way of understanding it, which is where Sri corrects the whole you know, paradigm, spiritual paradigm. And something which existed in ancient times. And that was that the body, the mind, the life energy, the heart, emotions, will, thought are all instruments and must be instruments of the soul. And that changes the whole thing. Why are we here? It gives a new meaning. Because if nirvana is the end point, then why and who condemned us to this life? So now a new sense emerges out of our life, our journey, a new kind of progress. And it is this that we have come here to manifest the perfection that is inherent in the divine consciousness. That's why we are here. And to manifest this perfection, we need instruments. I may be a wonderful musician inside. I may have learnt the best raga from Lord Shiva himself or watched the Nataraja dancing over the spheres, conducting their affairs. But if I if my, am lame, if I, my throat is bad, I cannot express the dance. So there is a kind of spiritual progress where we discover this inner perfection but we don't manifest in outer life. There have been such figures, great spiritual realizations but hardly anything which they could manifest in outer life. Why? Because they need an instrument. The classic example is uh, I mean, who else? Sri Ramakrishna, what a tremendous development. One can't imagine. He as, as if summarizes the entire spiritual life of mankind up to the point that he came. All the different approaches, religious approaches, this he summarized within his whole being. But then he needs somebody who can manifest it. And when Swami Vivekananda, then Narendra comes, he says, oh, I have been waiting for you for a long time. He says, what? I don't even know you. I have come to meet you and I want to have my questions. Okay, I will answer all your questions. But you are the one who will answer the questions of the world. Because Narendra has a kind of mind, wide, plastic mind. It's amazing. At the same time, look at, you know, this explains so beautifully the relation between the soul and nature. Of course, Swami Vivekananda is a spiritually, uh, you know, very developed person. It, a tower, a giant in his own. But, uh, but the relation is explained so well. When Swami Vivekananda gives a lecture, Chicago lecture, people are amazed and thrilled. They come and ask him, Oh, Swamiji, you are such a wonder. He says, Oh, you don't know the secret. What is the secret? They had not heard about Sri Ramakrishna. If they heard about him doing Kali Puja, they wouldn't even understand. They, oh, here is a man who has, what is his qualification? He is illiterate. I have got all the knowledge from him. You see, there is a story about Ishwar Chandra Vidya Sangar going and meeting Sri Ramakrishna and he says, 
when Sri Ramakrishna sees him, he says, Oh, the Sagar, Vidya Sagar, has come to meet the Nalla, the little stream. Vidya Sagar says, When a stream has become one with the Sheer Sagar, all Sagar will go and meet into him. So Swami Vivekananda says, Oh, I am nothing. There are thousands like me who can be created by Sri Ramakrishna. Then the world heard. In this one utterance, there was conjured something about the future. That just this external development, even inner development, as I said about, there are people who have tremendous occult capacities. There are new, there are faculties and other things which can be developed. But if the user is still the ego, we are still moving towards what happened to Lanka and what happened in Atlantis. It will still be at the mercy of the ego. Who... See, look at Ravana. He had mastered the occult sciences to an extent where he could govern the forces that govern destiny, the planetary motions, basically the forces that govern destiny. His son, he, he could defeat Indra. That's how he becomes Indrajit. He had mastered sleep. That man had tremendous capacities, man or whatever. And yet, all this was at the mercy of one particular group of people and at the expense of everyone else, devouring all other life around. But Lanka was very developed. You see what happened. If we don't believe in this, this is a mythological story. Let me put it in modern context. Just go back hundred years back. Without naming, there was an empire in which the sun never set. Today, the empire's sun is setting. We don't have to go back to mythologies. Why? Because when... And it was built on all that one could get from all over the world. So many places. Commonwealth. (laughs) So, you know, you have... And so much... And yet, it begins to set. Why? Because this is the law of life. That if we only develop in one dimension and not in others, we are destined to collapse. And the one dimension which is most important is the spiritual dimension. Now, spiritual dimension is not about nirvana. This is what I am trying to make very clear. Because the moment we think of spirituality, we think discarding this life. Spiritual dimension is to first discover that perfection within and then use a developed mind. Of course, the mind should be developed. It must, it must develop in... You see, when Shurabindo, when he writes, it appears so logical, so rational. <laughs> Though he is writing from a super reason. And yet, it's amazing. So, mind must be developed. Heart must be developed. If the heart is very narrow, how can the spirit use it like an instrument? We will end up making a cult. If the heart is narrow, one will discover something and then end up making a cult. Only those few persons for whom I have come a certain kind of method, no other. That's how cults, religions, which become dogmatic are formed because the heart is very narrow. Something has been touched of the spirit and one has been too satisfied too early and the instruments are very small. So it turns into a dogma and once you turn a spiritual life into a dogma, it's finished. Not only finished, it becomes dangerous. So the spiritual progress also must be along several lines. And Shobindu speaks of three lines of spiritual progress. One is deepening. Instead of the ego, there should be the vamana, the psychic being within man which should become the leader. Big task, but if man has to survive, if we have to really uh, be worthy to what we are born for, 
then it is inevitable. We can't do without it. And the mother says, it is the one thing which is very much within our reach. All that is required is a thirst. Thirst for progress. I want it. I want it. There is something I have heard about it. I have read about it. I don't know it yet. Let me seek it. And as we seek, before the intensity of this seeking, a door is cut in the mud walls of the self, bodily self. And we begin to feel life afresh and new. We begin to once again look at life with the wonder of a child which the mind has lost. Mind has lost the wonder. Why? Because we read in a book, we read an article, we read a WhatsApp university ka lecture. <laughs> and we believe we know. Very well informed. But when the psychic being begins to look, it says, my God, I don't know. This is just a giant ignorance. It's all darkness. What men call as lights, that's the beauty of the psychic being that is ever filled with wonder of a child. And therefore it can open yet another door for man. And thereby we have the true secret of unity. It can open the doors to a consciousness higher than the mind. So this is the second path. If we remain cabined within the mind and believe mind is all, as you know, Savitri very beautifully, that if mind is all, renounce all hope of truth. If mind is all, what are the limits of mind? Logic, debate, okay, fine, what's wrong with it? Nothing wrong with it. But who informs the logic? Typical example is courtroom. Try going to courtroom, sorry to say, if there are lawyers, I've made enough fun of doctors being a doctor, <laughs> so I think... <laughs> Try going to settle your issues in the court. <laughs> I don't need to say more. See how complicated they can get. What you could have solved within a year stretches for decades. Why? Not because they are bad guys. Please, everybody is good guy. Let's start with that. But because the judge just cannot decide. Why? Because one set of witnesses say one thing, another set of witnesses say something else. So you have constantly this flooding of different witnesses which contradicts it. This is the problem of the mind. It doesn't have the key to reconcile. No sure way of knowing the truth. One set of data comes in and says, I can say the data now itself. See, right now we are talking about all this data about people dying, corona, all this, mask. Okay, this is the data which has been gathered. <laughs> there were many events took place simultaneously where there were a lot of crowds Two kinds of crowds. One kind of crowd where people got infected. Another kind of crowd. Whether people didn't study, they should have studied. What was the corona degree of corona outbreak, say in a place like Afghanistan during the recent exodus? <laughs> it's interesting, Sabrimala. People did go. So many places. What happened to them? Why, why nobody studied? Or did people study and found nothing of significance? So the same, one side of the mind takes this data, another side takes this data and confused. But if you go deep into the data, beyond the data, then you discover a different truth. You discover it's not about crowd. Of course, crowds um, influence us. Crowds have a caging effect. But at the same time, there is something within us which influences the outcome, the recovery, etc., and that is the element of faith. Very difficult to study. But if we want to make a complete study. But how does the mind operate? Sensory data. Sensory data. Do the senses report us right? No. Why? Because they cannot see beyond the tip of our nose. 
they cannot see a man who is recovering whether he had faith or not they cannot see that a man who is dying how much he was filled with fear and panic we can only say that panic and fear created lung shadows that we know hyper reaction within the immune system but they cannot see what is the origin of fear was it because we spread the fear and then we suffered the loss and to regain faith we used medicines this i'm just saying that there are ways of looking at the same phenomena but mind is so dependent so the moment we understand that mind is very limited as long as we depend on the sensory data as long as we depend upon logic as an instrument of truth we will always always remain ignorant it's it, it is logical to understand it that we have to go beyond logic that's why agnosticism is the last word of logic i can know this much i cannot know but then beyond agnosticism man wants to know he wants to know the reason the atre of existence what is there and then one begins to go beyond the mind agnosticism is okay but it it's not see belief systems can be comforting but are not okay agnosticism says i don't know but then i don't know is equally uncomfortable feeling there should be a thirst for knowledge and this thirst for knowledge can take us beyond the mind and we open into realms where knowledge is direct there is inspiration there is intuition revelation and that's how we have to start looking at life afresh this is a second line of progress one we can shubindu spoke of these two terms homo psychicus homo erectus psychicus ya homo psychicus means through the psychic door we discover and there we discover many wonderful things for instance the true love because it's so close to the heart that makes life beautiful simple way of making life beautiful just discover this source of love within and life will be beautiful because wherever there is love there is beauty there is wonder there is harmony there is delight and wherever love is missing you may try everything association dialogues debates nothing will work out because the heart unites the mind divides but there is another line of equally progress which leads to the development of homo intellectualis homo psychicus through the psychic door and homo intellectualis and this yet another line of progress and all these especially you know both these progress can ultimately lead us to a true state of sense of universalization mind path is lot more complicated no doubt because there are several layers we have to go through yet even if we can grow into the first few layers it liberates us from the clutch in which we are imprisoned which we believe to be true it, it's very liberating it brings a kind of quietude quietude a certitude of knowledge it makes us see large spaces of time and it makes us conquer space but going through this door it can universalize itself and see the divine in all things which is the secret of unity and then the third progress which of course is the final one because this instrument under the psychic impact and the spiritual consciousness can develop only to a point so there it's not like this is here and this is here these start molding the instrument the psychic being can mold the brain to receive all the beautiful thoughts people often say think positive we'll talk about all this later think positive think positive everybody says this no everything is full of all this think positive so somebody answered we all know it how to think positive is the problem 
Because the button is on the ego. You can't think positive as long as the button is on the ego. You can try for some time. But every wave of positive thoughts will be countered by a barrage of negative thoughts. Shift the button. She uses the word shifting the needle of consciousness. And you see life will change. Of course shifting the button is not easy because we are so habituated. Habitually we keep pressing. The ego panics. Oh my God. I have to give up this self-identity. I am a big man. I am a Brahmin priest. I am the richest man in the world. Etc. Etc. How can I leave all my karmakanda? You know, once I had a, you know, before I read the mother, let me just recount this incident, how difficult it can get. There was a Swamiji. He had a big following. And yet, he was kind of guru of sorts. And he used to come here because he was so moved by Shurabindo's vision. I met him once. He was in his 70s. 75, I think, that time. So he had come for my talk and, you know, we had a good interchange. And he said, you know, uh, it is so wonderful. I, I wish I could, you know, come here and live this life. So I said, what prevents you? He said, my disciples, they will not understand it. It will be like a shock. They have, now, you know, he can't discard even that different cloth that he is wearing. Habit. You can't suddenly change yourself because all your life you have lived... Inside you understand that this is the true lie, but outside still we are bound by habit. So this habit that binds us, habitual, mechanical, ego panics, the mind says, are you sure, are you sure? Don't go by what is written in a spiritual book. Follow the scientists in Harvard University, they are the knowers of truth. So this is how we get, it's the big circle of ignorance, which keeps us tied to patterns of the past and prevents us to go toward the future. I could go on, but let me close with a passage from the mother, which is um, the last conversation of her. So I find it very significant. This is the last conversation of the mother in 1957, where she has seen the condition of humanity, given all the truth that she could give. And she yet finds that human beings are still a prisoner. And just as Moses wanted a section of humanity to be freed from the slavery to the kings, just as Christ wanted human beings to be freed from slavery of another kind to ignorance, just as Krishna wanted mankind to be freed from the slavery of joy and sorrow, just as Rama wanted animals to be freed, animal humanity to be freed from the slavery to animal way of life. Mother is wanting us to be freed from the slavery of the ego. So she says, what is called new birth? So new year time we are having this conference, so let it be a year of new birth. What is called new birth is the birth into the spiritual life. The spiritual consciousness it is to carry in oneself something of the spirit which individually through the soul can begin to rule the life and be the master of existence. The ruler must change. We may have, we may be wonderful taxpayers, everything good. But if the ruler is not good, what can you do? Same thing, you see in many countries, you know, North Korea is one example. People are nice. One of the very good people, Koreans, such wonderful people, both sides I am sure. But the ruler, 
He is the fellow who will not allow. They will starve to death. And yet, because the ruler is. So ruler, if it is the ego, all progress goes to waste or misuse. But in the supramental world, the spirit will be the master of this entire world and all its manifestations. All its expressions. Consciously, spontaneously, naturally. This will be true mastery. Very naturally. What does it mean? We will say what needs to be said. Not think and plan. Should I say this? Should I not say this? What will be the impact? Love will flow. The way it must flow. To where it must flow and how it must flow. In all its different shades and forms. Spontaneous life. Which is an expression of truth. Not an expression of falsehood. Right now, love is at the mercy of falsehood. Oh, I must. You know why? Because there are social norms. This, that. But that is not how it should flow. It should flow at the impulsion of only truth. Look at mother and Shurabindu's life. So with life, not driven by desires, but under the luminous life, under the impulsion of the truth consciousness. And even the body, which must obey the spirit. We should not say that the flesh is weak, though the spirit is willing. (laughs) We should say the flesh is ready to obey what the spirit wills. In the individual existence, that is what makes all the difference. So long as one just speaks of the spirit and it is something one has read about, whose existence one vaguely knows about, but not a very concrete reality for the consciousness, this means that one is not born into the spirit. The twice born is not by sprinkling water or wearing a janeu. The twice born is when we are actually born. It's a new way of seeing things and new way of doing things. And when one is born into the spirit, it becomes something much more concrete, much more living, much more real, much more tangible than the whole material world. Right now we think that is vague. Quite natural because, you know, we can only read about it, we only hear it. We can read everything about the ocean, for example. And then somebody says, please go and take a swim. Ah, I know, I know all the methods to swim. I have also swam in a swimming pool. I know swimming. Okay, go into the sea and swim. After 10 minutes, you discover what the sea is. You may have read everything, but swimming in the sea is a very different experience than knowing and reading everything about the sea and even being a good swimmer in the swimming pool. That's what the world changes. And this is what makes the essential difference. The atmosphere one can freely breathe the true, the concrete existence, when that becomes spontaneously real, the true concrete existence, the atmosphere one can freely breathe, then one knows one has crossed over to the other side. But so long as it is something rather vague and hazy, you have heard about it, you know that it exists, but it has no concrete reality, well, this means that the new birth has not yet taken place. That's why Mother says the age of religions is over. Religion says, yes, we have a soul. Everybody, when somebody dies, reads the Gita. In Indian context, na jayati mriyate vakadesh dachin, nenam shastrani, nenam chidyanti shastrani, nenam dahati pavakam. After that, we all go for our pound of flesh. That's not spiritual life. So to live it. As long as you tell yourself, yes, this I can see, this I can touch, the pain I suffer from. The hunger that torments me, the sleep that makes me feel heavy, this is real, this is concrete. 
mother laughs. That means that you have not yet crossed over to the other side. You are not born into the spirit. And then she closes on this note. In fact, the vast majority of men are like prisoners. Oh, we thought we are free, democratic society. So she is reminding us we are like prisoners with all the doors and windows closed. So they suffocate, which is quite natural. That's the reason why so much depression, anxieties, fear, all that is increased because there is a pressure of the supramental consciousness to liberate us. But the ego says, no, 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 please don't disturb me, my house, my cozy corner. The more it presses, the more we feel stifled and suffocated. But they have with them the key that opens the doors and windows and they do not use it. There is no greater folly than this and there is no greater tragedy than this. That we have the key but we chose to be suffocated. But long after they have come to know it, long after they have been told about it, they hesitate to use it and doubt whether it has the power to open the doors and windows or even that it is a good thing to open them. And even when they feel that after all it might be good, there remains some fear. What will happen when these doors and windows are opened? And they are afraid. They are afraid of being lost in that light and freedom. After that we can't write on our visiting cards with great pride. Dr. So-and-so educated in somewhere. Somewhere great. <laughs> it's gone because you discover healing comes from there. They want to remain what they call themselves. They like their falsehood and their bondage. Something in them likes it and goes on clinging to it. They still have the impression that without their limits, they would no longer exist. That is why the journey is so long. That is why it is difficult. For if one truly consented to cease to exist, everything would become so easy, so swift, so luminous, so joyful. But perhaps not in the way men understand joy and ease. Can we have fun? <laughs> Much greater than what fun can ever provide. In truth, there are very few people who do not enjoy fighting. <coughs> there are very few who could accept the absence of night. Few can conceive of light except as the opposite of darkness. Without shadows, there would be no picture. Without struggle, there would be no victory. Without suffering, there would be no joy. That is what they think. And so long as one thinks in this way, one is not yet born into the spirit. So let us be seekers of the infinite. And while we develop outside all this technology capacities, we need it. We must be very, very conscious that at whose mercy is all this going to be placed at. If it is as the mercy of the ego, then we are making, writing the destiny of Atlantis for ourselves. Or Lanka, a woman destroyed Lanka. Of course she is Jagdamba, not Rama. A woman, her love, her truth, that destroyed a whole civilization. Another woman destroyed the mighty kingdom of Kurus. 
what technological development my god nukes on an arrowhead mastering all the forces of nature why you are strand you know rain gods all that they can invoke just by this kind of technology they had that technology but they were not developed enough the those who were sitting on the throne they were so crude they didn't know how to respect a woman and so who destroyed kurukshetra the kurus the great kuru kingdom arjuna was an instrument krishna inspired but the one who destroyed was draupadi the woman so let us follow these two paths there is an urgency for the spiritual progress without it this development is going to be too dangerous and of course too incomplete thank you have step step 1 have the thirst thirst to find the soul thirst to find the divine step 2 increase this thirst read books meet people go to places where this thirst naturally develops step 3 intensify this thirst through concentration focus step 4 4 generalize this thirst whatever one may be doing remember that without this i am incomplete i am not a man or a woman or a human being worthy of being called a human without finding it step 5 turn this thirst towards the one from which it has come all these steps together turn it to god turn it to the master he who has given the thirst will give us the water that can quench step 6 do not let this thirst be quenched by coca cola water and water muddy water if there is a thirst wait like swati that chatak you know chatak is a interesting bird it is said i don't know that it waits for that two and a half moments when there will be swati nakshatra and when the rain drops it wants to drink that but we are too satisfied with artificial coca cola some we go and listen to some all kinds of things so don't fill this thirst you know what happens this is the secret thirst thirst for love that no human relation can quench but we are too easily satisfied thirst for knowledge a wisdom that only grace can give but we are too much ready i have read now all the books i can give lectures so i know thirst for power which we feel that if i am on a position and i have all the uh, you know from the prime minister and president on my cell phone list you don't know next moment even the mightiest man can die next moment so don't be satisfied with artificial aerated <laughs> drinks which actually end up not quenching our thirst but making it worse it is an illusion that you know so get rid of this illusion and step 8 let this thirst be not in the not only in the heart feel this thirst in the mind in the heart in the life in the body in every cell how can i be satisfied and feel fulfilled without that rain pouring from above the nectar of immortality step 9 all of the above at once step 10 learn to wait with infinite patience all this is up to us to do
But step 10 is the master stroke that only grace can give. All this has to be done with patience. You see how Mirabai aspires and she says, I am waiting for you to come. Ask of those who have aspired. I mean, Shrubindu, for after all those realizations, I was waiting. For whom? When the mother comes, suddenly the door opens. He himself has said. So let us wait upon the mother's grace, turn to her, offer our thirst. It is not one life's thirst. It's a song, Bhajan, I had written some time back. Its last line is, I have nothing with me to offer to you. So what I have got? Bhet, chadhane, laya, janani, janam, janam ki pyas. Offer this thirst at the feet of the Lord and then what you receive is charnamrit. Thank you. Yes, please. So Vigneshwar is asking, when we experience clinical pain, how to connect... Yes. And take it with the right attitude with all the screams and agony. Yeah, yeah. For oneself it's very easy. Pain is a intensification of consciousness at a point. That's what happens even clinically. The whole consciousness is now focused at that point. And because there is an onrush of consciousness, I am not talking right now of the neurological mechanisms. The mechanisms are subordinated to what is happening at the level of consciousness. And these mechanisms have their own role to play in ignorance. So I am not going into that. Though I mean, I understand that part, being a doctor. But because the consciousness is intensely concentrated, that whole part cannot bear that impact. See, what is pain? What is the difference between pain and touch? That's it. You intensify touch. Make it more and more. At some point you will say it's a pain. And when you feel it's somebody else's, it is, gives a more pain. The otherness of self. So it gives pain because the intensity keeps. Why it is drawing our attention to a spot? It serves a purpose in ignorance. Now we can do two things. One is enter deep into this pain. Pass on to the other side. That is not normally recommended. But one can do that. What is causing pain? And one will eventually discover that behind this pain, within this pain, this my inability, the narrowness, which is preventing it. The second is, come out, defocus, enter into wideness, vastness and make that part completely immobile. Even nature does that. That's how it heals pain eventually. Makes it immobile. Unfortunately, with certain parts it becomes dangerous because it makes the heart immobile. <laughs> you are a dead person. But there are other kinds of pain where there is another kind of immobility in which we can enter. Enter into a state where instead of, you see pain is one part, reaction. Oh my God, what's going to happen? That's suffering. Every time we are. So that part we can cut off. Enter a state of inner quietude which comes easiest by turning to the grace and abandoning, abandoning ourselves entirely in the hands of grace. Try it and see what soothing feeling it gives. This idea that I am helpless, I am going to die, this may happen, that may happen, augments, mind can augment pain to nth level, it's an amplifier. But equally mind can cut off all the trash and keep it only to a minuscule level. Of course, if one has never done this in life, it becomes very difficult. That's why the practice of equanimity should be a way of life. But having said that, immobility, widening of consciousness, 
and then entering into a state of deep inner peace. This is something which has to be practiced in life and doesn't matter if one is not practiced. Next time you have a pain, try it. Even if there is a headache, start with that, easiest, most common. Try to enter into vastness. Imagine, imagination is a wonderful thing given to man. Imagine, uh, we don't use it, why? Because it's imagination. Array, the whole world is an imagination seen from one point of view. All this is senses are conjuring. Only just because senses are imagining, we think it is real. But if the mind imagines, we think it is unreal. What are senses doing? They are imagining reality. And it's a mass imagination. It's a fact, scientific fact. What is reality about the body? It's atoms. We don't perceive it like that. Just because it's a habitual pattern, so we call it real. There is a real out there, but we don't experience it. Our senses conjure reality, build reality. So imagination also builds another order of reality. It has a key which can open a door. So imagine that there is peace. Imagine that there is a flow of grace. Imagine that there is light entering into that part. Ironing it out. Smoothening it out. Instead of being constricted, narrowed down, smoothen it out. And slowly we will see we get rid of pain. It can have an instant effect actually. So we should try that. And if we cannot do anything, just have faith that there is calm eyes divine regard the human scene. They are watching over us. It will take care. But while I, as I said, it's easy to do within oneself. But when a patient comes, so because the clinical pain, if a patient comes to me and if I say him, look here, you know, you try this, that. Now I have patients who come and say, Dr. Saab, just please prescribe me paracetamol. So I prescribe paracetamol. I ask them, 500 or 650? Or you want additional acyclophenic, hyphenic P, I'll give you that. Or gabapentin. That's because you can't apply it on others. Why? People often ask. Is it because they are not ready? That's the whole problem mother is pointing towards. Humanity is in a state of mass hypnosis by the mind. So you can't tell them that, you know, try it. But there are those who are willing, rare few, who say, I don't want medicine, but I want this other way to get rid of pain. It's difficult. But then they can be slowly brought into it. It cannot be taught. It can be given. There is a difference. It's not like you teach, do this, do that. But it can be given in the sense, this is a path. You walk the path. Do it yourself. So in that sense, it is given. It's not like, you know, taught that you sit and do this process. It's, it's a process, but an inner process. And if you do it, it works wonders. Okay. Thank you. Yes, I understand. Yes, please. So rather, instead of saying imagination, you are imagining the darkness. Go into its core. Don't be afraid. Go into its core of what seems dark. What is there? And you will discover deep within. Imagine that the whole world, imagine, everything is dark. Is there something in the core of that darkness? In that core, all that you need to, if you have to imagine is, just a luminous smile, divine smile. That's all that is required. Core of darkness. Even if you don't imagine, 
If you pierce it with courage, you will discover it there. Can darkness really, or try to reason out, can darkness be the beginning and end of things? Can't imagine, reason out. Is there anything like original darkness? Even modern physics will tell you there is nothing like that. Light is involved within darkness. It's concealed, therefore it appears dark. Remind yourself that our senses are unable to see what is hidden. There is no darkness. Darkness is only a concealment of light because our senses are limited. There is nothing else but light. This is it. So if you can't imagine, use this reason. Or else, meditate upon this idea that there is but one divine reality everywhere in this whole creation. Don't give it a name, form, doesn't matter. One divine reality. If you give it a name and form, wonderful. But if the mind cannot, at least name can be given, it's so easy. Everywhere there is the divine, everywhere there is mother, whatever way. So again you bypass imagination, but by the power of the idea you are imposing a truth upon the limitations of the senses and the mind. Alright, all these can be done. Of course one can turn the mind towards light in a very simple way. Because one is seeing darkness everywhere and mind cannot imagine light. Read books which are flooded with light. For instance, Savitri, Prayers and Meditations. Pick up randomly a page. How beautifully Savitri, you know, describes about death and night. Night is not our beginning or our end. We came to her from a supernal light. By light we live and to the light we go. Just read a few lines and see how. Because now we can't imagine. So there are capsules of light. Like we take a medicine, we can't cure ourselves, so it helps. So they will release light within us. Alright? That's the simplest and easiest. Okay, thank you. I think... Huh. Yes, Manan. Yes, yes. I got that. Humility has nothing to do with bowing down before human beings. Humility means whatever I may know, whatever I may, capacities I may have, there is so much more. Ego is when Newton's, uh, uh, humility is when Newton says, all that I have gathered till now are only pebbles on the seashore. The real pearls are waiting out there. So the way to, uh, the true way of humility is not before when human beings praise us. No, no, no. That's not the way. But inwardly to know that all this one comes from the divine and there is so much more. Inexhaustible, infinite. That is the path one has to take. It doesn't matter before human beings whether you just give a smile or just say okay. You don't even have to say, you know, all this comes from... The divine doesn't have to say that. It's an inner state. Inner state is that whatever I may have achieved, whatever I may have understood, whatever I may have thought, there's so much more always that infinity. To keep that always in the front, then the humility comes. Automatically it will come. Yes, could you get Manan's question? So Manan is saying uh, possibilities of transformation in the spirit of collective. Oh, so, yeah. 
संवाद ओके पॉसिबिलिटी ऑफ ट्रांसफॉर्मेशन इन दी कलेक्टिव सो आई वुड यू नो मोर देन कलेक्टिव ट्रांसफॉर्मेशन इज अ डिफरेंट सब्जेक्ट ऑल टूगेदर एंड इट डजेंट हैपन थ्रू सत्संग एंड संवाद इट हैपन्स एज ईच वन ऑफ अस ग्रोज इन टू द कलेक्टिव यूनिवर्सल कॉन्शियसनेस एंड टेक्स अपॉन वन सेल्फ the problems and challenges of the race like the world redeemer <laughs> and resolves it within oneself that is the path shirbindu speaks of shirbindu never engaged in satsang or samvad the only satsang is evening talks and later on and yet who else was doing collective transformation except shirbindu so uh, mother satsang much later it comes so while satsang is important satsang is important for a different reason not for collective transformation but to increase our collective aspiration which is different from transformation so there are some people who who are more developed others who are much less in terms of flame when they come together it's like many candles come together and they are lit so that way collective meditation collective aspiration collective prayer and collective reading like satsang is good satsang can be without even satsang is you can read a book and that satsang come, i mean for the sake of because it will release vibrations into the atmosphere which are going to affect everything around samvad is very very doubtful if it serves any purpose it's an activity of the mind and mind usually takes fixed positions it has fixed opinions and even when people out of their courtesy and goodness you'll say yeah that's true <laughs> you know i remember one interfaith dialogue where after the thing is over you know the priest goes to his people and says how was it did i impress them and the mullah goes to another group acha tha na bataya i i hope i managed to convince them and the pandit ji goes and says see before my shlokas they were all flowed samvad is like that well real dialogue is an activity of the mind it can serve a purpose of broadening the mind if people are willing the only purpose it can serve is where everybody is trying to widen oneself and arrive at a synthesis of human thought it can prepare the mind to receive something higher and better preparation nothing more than that but more often than not it only makes us feel happy that we had a kind of dialogue and interchange so it can lead to a kind of deceptive uh, feeling that you know i have had so many dialogues and all that most of the time they convert the converted <laughs> that's the other part so but like all human activities there is purpose but how far it can lead to transformation that's very doubtful transformation is a word which mother and shobinda have used in a very specific sense best left at that transformation can happen only by the mother's grace through the emergence of the psychic through the opening of the doors of the higher spiritual consciousness and through an opening to the still higher the highest which the mother embodies within herself i doubt whether samvad can ever lead even close to that satsang may in a particular person if he is ready sometime in a certain situation that collective field can suddenly trigger an opening not because of that but because the time had come like as mother says in every religion there are few people who are ready and then in spite of the religion they have a spiritual opening 